this is Patrick Daly and welcome to Interlinks. Interlinks is a program about connections, international business, supply chains and globalization and their effects on our life, our work and our travel over recent times. Today on the show, we'll be talking to Connor O'Gearan, lead consultant at Pinta Consulting. Pinta are consultants in strategic planning and implementation, human resources, marketing and coaching, operating in Ireland and overseas across multiple industry sectors. Uh, Connor started his career in the Defence Forces back in the 1980s as a radio and radar technician. Um, and exiting the, the first for defense forces with the rank of petty officer, followed by a career in business in the tech and pharma sectors and joined Pinta Consulting just over a year ago. So welcome, Connor, and thank you very much for being here with us today. Thank you, Patrick. Very nice to be here. Appreciate the uh, the opportunity. You're very welcome. Uh, great to have you. So to kick off, could you tell me uh, a little about an overview about your career to date? And how you went from being um, a radio technician in the Defence Forces back in the 80s to being a business consultant in the 2020s. <laughs> a little interesting, I suppose, as, as you go through my career, uh, curiosity drives me more than anything else. And at, at, in the onset of Defence Forces, it was necessity and curiosity. So I wanted to be in the Defence Forces, uh, also wanted an education. So the apprentice school was the place that seemed to work for both. Um, so I, I studied there in for three years. And then I managed to get onto the Air Corps and spend a year and a half there and finish my what was called full technological certificate back then from City and Guilds of London. And I also did my junior senior trade as a radio tech. And um, so post that, I went to the Navy then because it was the one that tweaked my interest the most, it had the most equipment, the most range. So I had another six months in uh, CIT at the time, which is MTU now for uh, Marine Radar Maintenance, um, and spent a number of years. In different roles there, loved it. Uh, got to figure out kind of leadership, a lot of innovation, and I suppose uh, entrepreneurship uh, and relying self reliance based on being at sea. Whatever happened, you had to fix it with what you had in front of you. Uh, great teamwork, um, fantastically interesting life, um, but not the most conducive for families. So after yeah. a number of years, there six years in fact, uh, I, I spent there, moved on then to industry. A lot of people were leaving at the time and had went to uh, a company called EMC. So I joined there as well too, and a technical role. Soon went in supervising and then managing the team. And um, there, it was a fantastic company. I spent 20 years at 12 different roles in that time. Worked across multiple business units within it. Again, led by curiosity. I still started off in, as I said, in a technical role. Then in the dot-com bubble burst in 2000, we, we lost nearly half the company. So we had to reinvent ourselves and we used a lot of Lean and Six Sigma for that. Uh, and we should do the same work with less. So that was the kind of foundations for that. So I moved on from that team uh, in in a technical role in manufacturing into uh, a, a business role in uh, product operations. So it's kind of looking at the forecasting demand planning for them for their international market. And uh, that opened my the way into business, if you like, away from manufacturing and a technical role. But it's still governed with processes and people for the vast majority of things you had to manage. Uh, and then I moved on to a finance role in there as a revenue operations, which is another part of the business. Again, I, I got to learn every up and downstream portion as I moved through it. Um, and then I was lucky enough, we set up a shared services center. And that team that I had revenue operations, one of the first ones to be absorbed into it. So I moved into that uh, organization and we grew that um, significantly from 500 people to over 2000 people. And for the first uh, growth element from 500,000, we didn't add any extra cost, which seems uh, unusual. But when you look at the model we used, we we looked at um, 
offshoring as much of the English as we could because that was the the trend at the time. So we we had teams in India and Manila, uh, in uh, in the Philippines, and we ran that model. And we ended up taking nearly forty five services in when I left across multiple business units. So there I was a chief of staff for a while, and then I became the uh, theater lead for. Um, Asia Pacific, Japan, and Europe, Middle East, and Africa, delivering the financial services for uh, for that for a company. So I suppose to talk in relative terms, it was a thirty-five billion dollar company. We were booking in eighteen billion dollars in uh, in uh, hardware a year and and uh, software, and we were selling out or paying out about nine billion. And I was part of the team that ran that, uh, and it was a fantastic opportunity. But in that, then as well, we we started looking, never stopped looking over our shoulders at the way the industry was changing and, and wondering where to next and to add value. So we were adding over about 150 million a year back into the company with what we were doing. Um, but we also ended up with a lot of data, which we managed to analyze. And we had a couple of roles, which are called value creation leads. So I held those for a couple of different uh, value streams. And the idea then was to look at all the data, look where we were and identify even more opportunities. So what it gave to me was I had like the order to cash cycle, I had the cure to pay cycle, I had a record report. And it gave me a true end-to-end vision of the business and how it ran and how global businesses run. And uh, that organization was was very, very well run. It was a business within a business, and it was a multifunctional shared service. And we won awards with the Shared Services and Outsourcing Network and with Shared Service Links and presented at a couple of seminars. So that was the, the huge background and basis. And I continued my education all the way through it. So I went back to college a number of times. So I did a diploma, which would be a degree now in electronic engineering as a mature student when I was in EMT in my technical role. I did a Bachelor of Science in uh, electronic manufacturing, again, sponsored and, and a co-developed course with EMC and, and MTU. And then I went back to do a uh, an MBA with uh, EMC again with UCC uh, in my executive role, where I had kind of ended up running a fairly significant finance organization uh, and and having that uh, impersonator or imposter kind of syndrome. And that, mm-hmm. that really did help me, you know, give me great confidence in that I had picked up a huge amount on the way um, and I had underestimated that until I went into formal education and the MBA was great. It just out a few gaps. And, and afterwards you went into, you went into the pharma sector afterwards. Yeah. So then Dell took us over and Dell had a completely different business model where they had their shared services were, uh, within the functions, and they already had all their infrastructure there, so there was no need for, you know, a, a management layer running a multifunctional global shared service organization. So I took uh, uh, the redundancy with with open arms. So it, after twenty years, it was gave me a very good uh, opportunity then to look at and reevaluate my career where I was and what I wanted to do. So it was um, pharma was the next biggest industry here because a lot of the high tech industries. I got my wayside in electronics industries within um, within Ireland. So I was looking at it saying, okay, I have the process. I know people management. I went to end business, but I don't know anything about the pharma sector itself. So I went in consulting uh, with a startup um, pharma in uh, Cashel, a company called Amneal Pharmaceuticals. And we were trying to take a uh, uh, lab scale product and develop it into a commercial uh, entity. And it was generics. Uh, so we... I went in consulting initially, helped get the license for the HPRA, our manufacturing license, and then we went through two um, of our IND or our AND applications, and we managed to get the the licenses to manufacture the product. Unfortunately, 
at that stage, the clinical trials didn't work out, but it was a massive learning for me. So I started off with all the business stuff, but had to, I suppose, drink GXP from a fire hose for a couple of years and then ended up as the head of operations there and over their manufacturing or over the manufacturing and warehousing and their OE program. Uh, but when the clinical trials failed, moved, I got an opportunity then to move on. Uh, so I went for commercial experience to GSK. So I spent two years down there in uh, in Dungarvan in, uh, in, in a very high volume uh, environment, uh, responsible for the oral care facility and the, the value streams running uh, the fixative and the, uh, the cleanse, natural cleansing tablets. And then I had in the other site a responsible for solvating production uh, within the uh, medicinal uh, plant. So that gave me huge experience for uh, consumer healthcare, uh, high volumes consumer healthcare and understanding where that went through what was a fairly busy time, which was uh, yeah. uh, during COVID. So after two years there, um, I, I decided to look for other opportunities. Um, and that's when I kind of went looking at the business and where we were and what I could do. And I had a chat with uh, Peter Hannon in uh, Pinta just to try and figure out the lay of the land, which all of a sudden became a interview <laughs> and mm. haven't looked back. So I've been with them I, for over a year now. So what's your what's your current role in Pinta then? What, so what's your... so I, I'm trying to lead up a business process excellence uh, offering within the group. Um, so for Pinta, they've they've as you mentioned some of their other uh, businesses and, and, and offerings earlier. Um, and they've they've gone into multimedia as well, and they've expanded in where there's a demand. But I'm lucky in that because of what I I've done in in looking at end-to-end -end business processes across multiple industries, um, I bring the ability to have leadership and and operations experience in with uh, the when I was in EMC, I would have done uh, as a Kaizen leader and a lean champion, uh, and in some green belt. I would have known all of the operation excellence. So part of that is I used to run Kaizen events and that was mapping out and learning to see processes with strict goals and timelines and then trying to come back and deliver um, improvements. And I took that out of manufacturing product with me through um, my time in finance and in, in, in sales operations and in the other business units, which meant that I could then with Pinta walk in and partner with customers and look at their challenges. Mm. And I've used that extensively now in the last year and a half across multiple we've worked in, mainly pharma, uh, but we've worked in financial services and, uh, uh, group as well too. Um, and they themselves work in multiple other um, sectors. They're in the SME sector, they're in a nonprofit, uh, sports and especially niche with the credit unions. I see I see Pinta's um, logo is a ship, so I assume that it's one of the tr trio of Ships, the Pinta, yeah, the Pinta, Santa, Santa Maria, Maria yeah, on a Columbus, voyage, Columbus voyage yeah. of discovery. So, what, what's what's the thinking behind that? So, the the idea is that it is heading off on a voyage of discovery. So, each time we deal with a client, we're trying to figure out what are their unique challenges, uh, opportunities, um, and work with them to tailor what we can uh, as a solution for them. So, it's it's kind of going in to the unknown, exploring what's out there. And then trying to deliver, you know, people's potential. So when we look at at it, it's navigating through the kind of unknown, and then you know, ultimately reaching a goal that's that's uh, required. Hmm. When you transitioned from the defense forces into industry, what were some of the cultural differences that you noticed and that you had to adapt to? It's funny, and it seems strange to say it now, but I had never worked with uh, any women before uh, because I went to, you know, it was, it was the defense forces. There was only women being introduced at the time. So that was probably the biggest cultural change. 
uh, it not being a military environment and it being a very, um, you know, that that structure and that wasn't something, you know, I, I missed to an extent. Um, but again, it gave me a fantastic background. that I, I had a much more disciplined approach to everything I was looking at and working with. And because there wasn't any, um, I suppose, major life uh, or death decisions to be made in in, in industry, um, it it meant that I just have a very calm, I suppose, approach to uh, addressing problems, trying to figure out what's right, assessing them, um, being able to step back from it. Um, so that that to me, that was the, the difference. Was just culturally, um, yeah, it was the people, the the structure. Um, but other than that, I mean, I've absolutely loved it. Even in the defence service, I would have been unusual in in serving in all three corps. Mm. I was well used to changing, and even when I was in the navy, I was on different ships and I had different roles. So nothing, nothing stayed the same for me. So that idea of moving into a different role and working in a different company, and even when I was in that company in EMC, as I said, I worked in multiple different areas and roles. So I was always comfortable with learning new processes, learning, meeting new people, new teams. Always just trying to improve stuff, and and that my my whole training and psyche is in finding faults and trying to fix them. Ninety three point nine, Dublin South FM. When you went into Pinta then, it was still really the the pandemic. It was waning, but I guess it was still there. So how has the experience of the pandemic um, changed or impacted the way Pinta conducts its business and the way it interacts with its clients and so on? Yeah, so traditionally an awful lot of what we would do would be uh, face-to-face workshops. And you're trying to you know build up relations with people inside rooms and you're trying to work through it. So that very much couldn't happen. So it happened in very rare occasions when when the rules allowed it. So for, for us, it became virtual. So you were working and using collaborative tools, again, a form of learning, the likes of Mural uh, and that, where you can go in and you can replicate some of what you're doing to help you map out processes and, and allow it to be interactive so people can actually interact with everyone at the same time with the system and, and do some of the basics that are there. Uh, but yeah, it, it was very much the virtual environment as we're doing now. You're going over Zoom and teams and uh, using all the collaborative tools, very much more difficult. Things take a bit longer and the being able to engage people and keep them engaged for long workshops online is is really a challenge that that, that, that took a bit of time to get used to. And uh, I read recently a PwC uh, report, they produced this annual CEO report and uh, it showed that a significant proportion of Irish CEOs are saying now that unless their business models change, um, their businesses are going to become economically unviable within 10 years. Um, what do you see as the major kind of strategic issues facing business in, in general in the coming years? So I have a, a couple of things. Um, so the, the cost of capital is probably the biggest thing, right? So in an environment where you had zero uh, interest, you know, getting money and being able to invest in ideas was much, much easier in the past. Now, and we've seen with the tech sector where a lot of uh, businesses are being asked about their model, about being overvalued, and they're, they're, I suppose, reshaping and resizing for that. So that idea of, of being able to raise capital cheaply and drive innovation and growth with it is going to be a huge challenge. And look, there's rumblings of, you know, based on, on what we've seen with the, uh, the investment banks that we've seen issues with recently that, you know, there's some of the pundits are looking and talking about, are we heading towards another um, financial uh, recession slash crisis on a slower boil, not like it had happened in the past, but a different model. So I think that's going to be a challenging environment. I think you mentioned as well earlier about the pandemic. 
there's an awful lot of people like myself now who work remotely. Um, and there's 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 a real I see where people don't want to go back into the office and don't have and and it, I see CEOs struggling with that and struggling with a remote workforce and how you manage that, you know, in, in some of the non-traditional uh, environments. I think the current geopolitical environment is is very straining on the world, uh, and we know part of that it drove the uh, the uh, current financial challenge and, and the raised interest rates and that. But for me, you know, that axis that's developing between uh, Russia, China, potentially Iran on that space, and all the countries lining up to it is worrying. Um, and then you see companies who are now who would make decisions. And I was in in my global role, I was a huge believer in globalization. I used to teach it as part of a an internal subject and course. And you look back in history at how big India were and how big China were before the States came in and, and, and Western Europe and grew up. But you know, they, they've been on a huge surge in, in, in China for so long. Um, and I, that I find disheartening that it is going that way and it's shaping that way. Um, and but the challenge is going to be for businesses that are truly multinational and global and where they have presences in, in those regions now. And they may be based in Europe or they may be based in the US as, as headquarters. That there's hugely uh, there's huge ramifications there as to how they can run their business and where they're going to go, and that will drive onshoring, nearshoring, whatever way you want to talk about it. Um, but that's that's going to be a, a challenge for for big businesses going forward. Yeah. What would you say is the most important life lesson that you've learned that stood to you all through your career? Never stop learning. So always, and there was a. Uh, Martin Brennan, who ran proactive management for us when one of the first management courses I went on at EMC, he he said that, and it's never been truer. It's you know it's uh, it stands because if it's it's the most, it's not the strongest or the fastest when the most adaptable are the ones that are going to survive. So for for that and learning and, and figuring out what can what you can do differently, what way you can add value, and um, garnering all the different things. I mean, I look now at AI as a huge wave of technology coming at us. And I, I, I worry about it in one extent, about the way it's, it could be regulated and what could happen with it. I see a whole industry and, and, and jobs that are going to be threatened by it. And we'll have to reskill and retrain to, to provide use, uses in other ways. Um, so that's definitely one. And then at the app, you know, AIGPT, I, I've seen you know, huge uses for that. And I've seen people diss it over, they ask it specific questions, but it's learning. It's a very, very capable technology. It's out in a while now. and I know people are using it to write their work emails. People are using it to write reports. People are using it to, very recently someone had, had wrote, used it to write a poem uh, for somebody. Uh, I just I just think it's fascinating. Um, and I look back at some of the older technology, and which was very specific, and I look at its capabilities and harnessed correctly, it is, it's a huge stepping stone for, for you know, human race. Uh, but not managed properly, it, it, it could be very unwieldy and very, very hard to, to rein back in. And has the, the experience of the last two or three years changed, refined or reinforced any of your own views or beliefs about work and business? I think everyone reevaluated. you know, when, when the, the threat of COVID was very real and everyone didn't know what it was going to do as to what were the most precious things in life. People have looked at their families, looked at their health. Now, some of it is slipping back because by human nature, you're defaulting back into it. But that idea of what is what is important, what do you want to spend your time on? Do you want to make a difference? And do you want to enjoy what you're doing? And, and that, that drove a lot of people's decisions as to where they went to and what work they took up. Um, and there, there were some statistics out for the amount of people who quit roles was phenomenal um, during COVID and at the end of it. Um, so that 
that I think is enduring uh, and it's caused people to look differently at where they are and what they want to do with their lives. And you, uh, you're obviously a successful uh, person, but as we all know, success is not straight line and everybody faces setbacks in their career and in their life. So how do you approach setbacks and what do you do or what do you think or what do you say to yourself to get yourself back on track when you do have a setback? Yeah, that's a good question. So for me, I, I'm always looking as to, I've never been a glass half empty. It's always a glass half full person. So I, I kind of, I, I take it on and I go, okay, what can I learn from this? What, what, what would I have done differently? What could I have done differently? And, you know, I take that to the next time and I try and move through it. Um, I, I look at the adoption curve for change and, you know, we go through a denial and we, you know, then you eventually get through your know, anger and then you get through acceptance. But once you recognize that that's a path you're going to go through, you can manage that and you can manage to get through it quite quickly. Um, I mean, a couple of major setbacks, but I've, I've often actually taken steps back from roles and sideways in roles just to expand my, my knowledge and my learning and my capability, knowing that longer term it'll pay off or, you know, you, you, you can't, you can't get experience without mistakes basically. Right. And uh, that's the only thing that's going to prevent you from making mistakes in the future. So it's part of life. So were you, were you different then in, in some of those corporate um, environments where you were, you know, I would, I would work with lots of them and you see people build careers in them over years and they're on, on a path and often it's about not making mistakes and getting promotions yeah. and so on. But it, it strikes me that you took a different tack there that you, you, you went about it in a different way. Am I, am I, am I right in picking up on that or what, what would you say no. about that? No, you are. Um, yeah. I, I wasn't, I was never kind of looking at straight lines. I was like, I often joke with my kids. I still don't know what I'm going to do when I grow up, you know, because so I'm, I'm still, you know, I'm still learning. I'm doing this now and I actually love this. And I've, I've come on this where I did some reflection. I went, I, I love working with people. I love working with different groups. I love learning new things. I love understanding processes. And then I love, you know, helping people. So all of that fits into where I am now and it's great variety in it. So I'm actually, you know, if you like where I am now, I'm, in, I, I'm here sooner than I thought I was going to be. Um, you know, I was pitching in a couple of years time. When I did my MBA, my favorite module was where we went out doing the consulting element of it. And um, when I used to run all the Kaizen events and, and walking with a group of people, me not knowing what the answer was going to be, them not knowing, and then trusting in a framework and trying to work through it and, and that voyage of discovery with people. And that uh, it never ceases to please me when I when I have people in a room that all work in the same company or different companies. They're all involved in the process. They all know bits of it, but no one really knows it end to end. And just drawing that out and people seeing it and then the lovely eureka moments where people understand, oh, I'm doing that. That's impacting you this way. Yeah, and I'm asking you to do that. And that's, 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 the, could we make this? And then people seeing it, that, that I get, yeah, great pleasure out of. Yeah. So, so what, what, what would be the thing about consulting that you find the most um, challenging? Uh, so you're telling us there what, what's kind of enlightening or enjoying about it. What's the challenging aspect of consulting? The challenging bit is, so we have a nice pipeline now, but you're always worried, you know, that something will happen to disrupt it. So the, the pandemic obviously was a huge disruptor. You're looking at some of the, the global financial stuff that going on there and you're going, okay, let's hope that doesn't disrupt the model or, or take some of that away. So it is that pipeline, knowing that you have work in the future, um, and but then also not ending up with too much of it that you can't, you know, satisfy your customers' demands or do it, or coming up against challenges where you know what you want to do or you know how it should happen, but you just can't get your hands on the skill set to 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 satisfy it. They're kind of the, the two big things I'd be worried about at this stage. Yeah. And then outside of, of work, in terms of hobbies and interests, what kind of things do you like to do when you're not working? 
So uh, adventure sports would have always been my main thing. Um, kind of quieting down a little bit now. So canoeing and kayaking would have been a huge part of what it's done. I still kayak with our small bit, but canoe with the scouts. Uh, I'm involved in scouting. Usually love it. Love the idea of uh, of doing something in the outdoors with the, the the scouts themselves. Again, it's learning, developing, watching them grow. You know, the, the voyage of discovery. I just love that with them. Um, and then I do a lot of what I did during the pandemic. I used to swim for years, and because of all the lockdown and everything else, I just got into open water swimming. Uh, and swam through all the winters up in a local reservoir next to us here, and it was just I found it very very uh cathartic the idea that you could you can just go up there and it's just in, in the cold water it's just fun very refreshing and, and a great space for mindfulness and whatever else to be able to get yourself into uh get yourself centered before you went back at, at, at the world and are you are you reading or listening to anything lately that you find particularly inspiring that you might recommend to listeners yeah i look i've I, i've always had the said about interest in learning i i struggled to make the time to read books with the kind of crazy chaotic jobs I was in. But when I made the space for it and started using uh, the likes of Audible and that and, and listening to podcasts and that, um, some of the more seminal books in the last couple of years, the, uh, Sapiens uh, by Harari, to me, that showed us where we came from and made an awful lot of sense of, of, of the human race. But then he wrote a book, Homodeus, which looks into the future and talks about AI and where we are and what we could do. And it's just phenomenal futuristic uh, thinking, but, you know, it maps out the, the what possibly could happen. Um, from a geopolitical point of view, two very good books, The Prisons of Geography and uh, The Power of Geography, Tim Marshall. But I'm, you, you listen to those books and he predicted what was going to happen, you know, with with uh, Russia, Ukraine, years before Andy talks about China and Taiwan, he talks about the other areas now. Phenomenal, uh, you know, insight and a lot of it dating back to the way the world was divided up uh, you know, by the colonial powers. And then the Atomic Habits is one I read recently, which I liked about the idea that you having you change your methods, change what you're doing it by small increments. So that was a very useful practical book. And the one that I'm absolutely loving and I'm only started at the moment is one called Range by David Epstein. And it's funny, it's as if it was written for me. <laughs> it's, uh, it talks about, you know, generalism and, and generalism, the way people get broad experience and then come back and narrow focus then after a while rather than that, what you talked about earlier, the deep learning, where you, you progress and you, you develop in, in a single, uh, I suppose, direction over time. But because that's all you're used to, it can blind you to some of the other opportunities and developments and stuff that are happening around in, in other areas. And you see that in your consultancy work when you're talking to people in the client companies who are subject matter experts on a on a given aspect of the business, and they don't know what's going on over there, right? It's, it's, yeah. uh, it's extraordinary. And it is, and it's just, it's just the way, you know, just the way the way society is set up, the way learning is, the way development is, and progression is in, in some areas. And uh, I'm always like, the, I always ask the, the naive questions because I'm walking into things saying, "Well, why do we do it this way?" And the amount of times that people go, "You know, we don't really know." Well, this is the way we've always done it, or else. And then you know, it's that nice challenge then to say, "Could it be done differently? How could it be done differently?" Um, and and for some groups where you're very focused on that and they're brilliant at what they're at, it's you know, it's that reflection helps, you know, to, to help someone hold a mirror up and, and say, you know, well, why are we doing it this way? Is there another way of doing it? Is there possibly a better way of doing it? Um, so it's, yeah, it's it's uh, it's good. So how can listeners find out more about uh, Pinta and the, the services that are offered and how can they get, get in touch? So we have a website. So it's uh, it's uh, on, on Pinta.ie. 
and we have uh, my my own one is Connor at Pinta.ie, so it's nice and easy to remember. It's not it's not a, a straightforward P I N T A, isn't it? P I N T A, correct? Yeah, and it's www.pinta.pinta.ie, um, and I leave. I can I'll, I'll give you a, a kind of one of our, our marketing leaflets there, and we can attach that or throw it up as well too, so that at least people can reference that. Excellent. Well, many many thanks, Connor, for being with us uh, today. It's been an absolute pleasure to chat with you. Thank you very much again for having me. And it's been a pleasure. So look forward to listening to some more of your podcasts as well too, to continue my learning. Excellent. You're very welcome. Thanks also to our listeners for tuning in again today. And be aware that if you enjoyed this episode, you can find the full series of over 120 episodes of Interlinks on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Acast, and other major podcast platforms. So until next time, keep well and stay safe.